Welcome to the Relatable Finance Podcast. Here are your hosts, Joseph Carl and Shane Phillips. Welcome to today's episode of Relatable Finance. Today we're going to touch on a variety of topics, but ultimately it boils down to how do investments lead to money in your pocket? We have discussed various asset classes, interest rates, and the recent recovery in past podcasts, but today we're going to discuss different parts of the investment return, how those fit together to create your total return, how each component is taxed as ultimately it matters what you take home in your pocket after tax. We'll also discuss different types of investment accounts. As you will see, they are taxed very differently. So at the end of the day, we invest our hard-earned capital so that it grows over time. While we spend a lot of time on investment strategy and trying to find ways to grow that capital as quickly or as efficiently as possible, understanding the sources of returns as well as the potential tax consequences is critical to successful execution of any investment strategy. So we thought we'd spend some time on this today. So let's go ahead and start out with how you make money. Stocks, bonds, real estate, CDs, hedge funds, whatever it is, these investments will give you an investment return. This return we like to call total return because it consists of really two things if we want to keep it simple, an income component and capital appreciation. This is what we focus on when we make our investment decisions, what the potential combination of those two will give us. Income can be interest payments from bonds, rents from real estate or dividends from stocks, whereas capital appreciation is the general rise in value of any type of investment I've mentioned. When you put together your income and capital appreciation, you get your total return. We want to stress one thing. High income alone does not mean that it is a good investment or a good investment portfolio. Anything, anything that pays a high amount of income likely has risks, same as something that pays no income. It likely has different risks. But depending upon what your objectives are, what your timeline is, and what we will get to later, which is your tax situation, you will likely want some combination of income and capital appreciation. Let's set some expectations for what these numbers look like today and throughout history. So let's start with stocks. If we just look at the S&P 500 from 1930 through 2020, the total return was about 10% of year. 41% of that return, or right around 4%, came from dividends. So way back when, back to the 40s, the 60s, and the 70s, Dividends consisted of more than 40% of the total return during those decades. We had a strange decade in the 2000s where dividends were still positive, but the price return was actually negative. And more recently, we've seen a decrease in the percent of dividends as they have contributed to the total return. So when we look recently, again, outside of the 2000s, the other decades, Dividends were less than 30% of the total return. The dividend yield has hovered around 2% since the mid-1990s, except for a jump during the financial crisis when stock prices plummeted. Prior to that, we saw dividend yields closer to 3%, and even a period in the mid-1970s through the mid-1980s where they were in the 4% to 6% range. Dividends allow you to get some consistent return from these stocks while you also keeping potential upside appreciation. Dividends are basically payments back to the shareholders for amounts of cash that the company would rather turn to reinvest in company. Many cash-rich companies, value-oriented businesses will pay dividends, while more growth-oriented companies find it best to reinvest those cash flows back into the business rather than paying them out to shareholders. At the end of the day, a company has a choice when it makes a profit reinvest into the company or pay cash out to shareholders. If they feel like they can grow, they'll reinvest in support to promote that growth. If they do not, they'll pay a portion out as dividend. 
It is for this reason that a company that pays out most as dividends, that a good portion of your potential returns will come from the dividend yield. So currently when we look at the dividend yield, the S&P 500 dividend yield is right around 1.3 to 1.4%. And that's one of the lowest we've seen since the early 2000s. Even last summer in 2020, it was closer to 1.9%. And historically, they, they have played a great role in the total return. As I mentioned, over 40%, which included both dividends and those dividends being reinvested. But dividends are taxed every year they are paid, unlike capital gains that are only taxed when securities are sold. Great point, Shane. And the first time we will talk about taxes today. Dividends are either taxed as ordinary dividends or qualified dividends. Ordinary dividends are taxed as income, like interest from taxable bonds, whereas qualified dividends are taxed at a different rate. These are currently taxed at long-term capital gains rates, which can be 0%, 15%, or 20%, depending upon your income level. Dividends have also been something that investors have relied upon for spending in retirement, and when combined with interest from bonds, Social Security, and maybe a pension, have supported their cash flow and lifestyle needs during retirement. So let's look at the other part of the total return and use stocks again, and that's capital appreciation. This is as simple as buying an S&P 500 ETF for $100 and selling it for $125. It appreciated. You made $25, or in this case, also 25%. Add any dividends paid to this and you have your total return. Capital gains are either short term for those investments held less than a year or long term for those held longer. Currently, short-term gains are taxed as income, whereas long-term gains are taxed at a preferential rate, again, either 0, 15, or 20%. If we switch gears to bonds, we also focus on a total return. Their income component is interest and, as mentioned, is taxed as income. Depending upon what type of bonds and what type of bond investment strategy you have, you may or may not have capital appreciation. If you buy a bond on the date of issuance with a yield of 2% and never sell that bond, as long as the company or government doesn't default, you will earn 2% a year and have no capital appreciation. But throughout the time you hold that bond, the price of the bond will fluctuate and thus gives you an opportunity for capital appreciation. If you have a more active bond investment strategy and decide to sell the bond when the price has appreciated, in case of the prior example, you now have the opportunity to achieve a return higher than the 2%. The income portion of bond investing will tend to make up a larger portion of your expected total return, likely a larger portion than dividends make up of your expected equity return. We often get questions about municipal bonds as most of them do not pay federal taxes. This is an amazing benefit for municipalities and allows them to provide bonds with more attractive returns. However, the market is very smart. You will often not find a municipal bond in a taxable bond of similar risk paying the same yield. What you will find is a corporate bond paying a higher yield, and then after it is taxed, paying something similar to municipal bonds. You have to look at municipal bonds in this lens. The idea of not paying taxes does sound amazing, but if you do the work and compare their after-tax yields, depending on the bond and your tax bracket, the municipal bond may or may not be more attractive. So do the work. Tax-free isn't always better. Let's stay on taxes for another minute. Three simple ways to gain exposure to stocks or bonds or even REITs are individual securities, exchange-traded funds or ETFs, and mutual funds. Let's focus on stocks. From a taxation perspective, individual stocks are the simplest and most tax efficient. They may pay you a dividend, and then there will be a tax consequence when you sell the security. 
ETFs are really a collection of stocks or bonds or whatever it is, but you buy it and sell them similar to how you'd buy and sell an individual stock. The ETF gathers all the dividends and pays them out on a regular basis, be it monthly or quarterly or whatever it is. And when you sell the security, you have a tax consequence as well. These are also fairly efficient from a taxation standpoint. Mutual funds are where some inefficiencies come in. The mutual fund gathers dividends and distributes them similar to an ETF. In most cases, a portfolio manager and their team are behind the scenes buying and selling stocks for the fund. This creates a tax consequence for the fund, but is immediately passed on to the investors. Usually once a year, the fund will look at themselves and decide whether or not they distribute a capital gain. If they decide to do this, they set a date to do this, usually a month or two in advance. You could be subject to this capital gain, and then you have the tax consequences when you sell. So the reason mutual funds are inefficient is because of the way they, they distribute these capital gains. If they haven't distributed a gain in five years and you've been a shareholder the whole time, at the end of year five they distribute one, then it makes sense. It seems fair. But this is on top of the gain that you will pay when you actually sell the mutual fund. Where it is even more inefficient is if I bought the mutual fund a month before they distribute a gain, and while I only own the fund a month, I still have to pay tax on the distribution that has accumulated over the last five years. Definitely differences based on the three different ways of owning stocks. Clear-cut benefits from a tax perspective with mutual funds being the least efficient. But remember, with a mutual fund, you're getting active professional management. So maybe paying a little more in taxes isn't the worst thing. Now that we know about total return and some tax consequences for different investments, let's discuss account types as they have different tax consequences as well and it may make sense to hold different investments in different accounts. First off, a regular taxable account. This consists of after-tax money, meaning this is money that you made, let's say from work, and already paid taxes on. All of the income in this account, like dividends and interest, are taxed in the year that they are paid, and if you sell anything for a gain, you would pay taxes on it that year as well. The tax rate on the income is based upon your total income, so your salary and any other income sources would be kind combined to figure out that rate. Also, if you sell anything for a loss, you can use those losses to offset gains this year. Or if you don't have any gains to offset, you can carry those losses forward into future years to offset future gains. So some call this active selling of losses tax loss harvesting and can be very beneficial. So regular taxable accounts are pretty straightforward, we would say. The other types of accounts are qualified accounts. So basically two options here, you have a regular either 401k or IRA, but the idea is they're a regular one, or you have the Roth option for both of those. So very simply, let's just look at a regular IRA. The money that is in that account has never been taxed. So when you add 10,000 to it during the year, that comes off your taxable income. This investment grows over the years, but a huge benefit is that all those taxes that you would pay in a taxable account every year, you do not have to pay taxes within the IRA. So we're looking at dividends or interest or even capital gains that you would have normally had to pay taxes on during the year. All of those accumulate and defer. You pay taxes on distributions from your IRAs when you take them out, hopefully in retirement, and these are taxed as income, which may seem a little bit harsh, but remember, you never actually paid tax on this money ever before. The Roth option is a similar idea, but opposite from the tax standpoint. Money you put into a Roth has been taxed, similar to a taxable account, but this grows tax-free for all interest and dividends, and when you take it out, it is taken out tax-free as you have already paid tax on it. 
Another big difference as of now, you have no requirement to take money out from a Roth, whereas in an IRA or a 401k, you have an IRMD or required minimum distribution where you have to start taking money out, which is currently at age 72. There are other similarities and differences between the three, but those are the main ones. It may not be a bad idea to have assets in all three if possible. Get some of the liquidity of a taxable account, which you can access at any time, whereas the IRAs or 401ks you might get penalized if you withdraw funds before age 59 and a half. The tax deferral from the IRA accounts is great and definitely adds up over time. And then a mixture of the tax statuses of the regular and Roth options, which allows you to manage your income and taxes in retirement. Because of some of these differences in taxations, some assets tend to work better in certain accounts, assuming you do have assets in all three types. Income producing assets like bonds and dividend paying stocks may be best held in a tax deferred account so you don't have to pay tax on them yearly, whereas growth oriented stocks that do not pay dividends may work better in a taxable account as you only need to pay capital gains taxes on the sale. There have even been some recent headlines about people using Roth IRAs to their advantage where they would buy very early shares of companies that are now huge household names and all the growth in the account millions of dollars worth in some of these examples can be taken out completely tax-free. So maybe an argument to own your riskiest, highest potential earning investments in a tax-free account, such as a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k. So long story short, hopefully you took away from today's talk that investment returns need to be looked at as what your total return is, not just income or capital appreciation, and even further, what your after-tax return is. Different account types may provide different benefits for different types of assets, something we refer to as asset location. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Relatable Finance. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at provwealth.com or check out our website, relatablefinancepodcast.com. Provenance Wealth Advisors is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services are offered through Provenance Wealth Advisors and Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Any opinions are those of Relatable Finance Podcast and PWA and not necessarily those of Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance that any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. Investment involves risk and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against a loss. Investing involves risk and investors may incur a profit or loss. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Future investment performance cannot be guaranteed and investment yields will fluctuate with market conditions. Any examples given in the podcast are for illustration purposes only. Actual investor results will vary.